Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here and for worshiping with us today. Uh, if you were here this last week, you know that we started a new series on the life of Moses. Um, if you're not familiar with Moses, um, hang on. It is a wild ride. You're in for a treat on really an amazing figure in human history. Uh, so we're going to be studying the life of Moses. and We've tagged the, the series with this title, Moses, the Servant of God. Moses, the servant of God. And the reason why we're calling it the servant of Moses, the servant of God, uh, the shaping of God's servant, is because in Scripture, um, there is lots of references of Moses. And I don't know if you looked at them all. I have. There's a lot of them. And the most common tagline for Moses in the Bible is Moses, the servant of God. Moses, the Lord's servant. And so we're calling it the shaping of God's servant because by looking at the life of Moses, not only we get to learn about a very fascinating figure in scripture and in human history, but we also get to see how it is that God fashioned him to be his servant. And the truth is, that is not a bad tagline to have on your name, the servant of God, is it? In fact, God wants us and intends us to be his servants. And the question is, well, God, how is it that we become your servants? How is it that you fashion us to become your servants? Which is why looking at the life of Moses is so helpful because we get to see God's hand at work in shaping Moses. And we get to see how responsive Moses is to the hand of God and how he becomes his servant. And it's incredibly uh, valuable and important because we get to see how God wants to do that in our lives as well. Because it's hard at times to see the big picture, to see what God is doing. In fact, if you look at a piece of art, it's sometimes difficult to see what the artist is doing if you're watching in the, prog- in the, in the, in the process. And so I just showed you, a, I want to bring a picture. I brought a picture of a, a block of marble, okay? This is a block of marble. And the, 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 what a sculpture is going to do is going to find a block of marble. Well, how does it get from a block of marble to a beautiful um, statue, which is what I want to show you next. So how does it go from that to this? And you're like, wow, that's amazing. Now, um, it's hard probably at some point in the process, if you're looking at that block of marble and the, the sculptor is doing work on it, to say, I just don't see what's going on there. And the reason why we don't see it is because we're not the one shaping. There's a, an artist has intention and a plan, but we may not see it until it begins to take further shape. And if we were at some point, by the way, to be able to interview the block of marble and say, hey, block of marble, How's it going right now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my guess is the marble would say, not good. <laughs> not good at all. There's been a lot of smashing, and that's been painful. There's been a lot of, like, chipping and, and, <laughs> and, and carving and, and hammering, and so not good at all, right? That is how the marble is feeling. Do you know what I'm saying? But the reason for that is because the artist is the one that's doing the shaping. And we don't see it, but sometimes we want to measure things, what God is doing in the moment, and say, oh man, this is painful. Oh man, this is hard. Oh man, this doesn't make sense. But God has a much bigger picture, and he has a long-term plan in place. And so we get to see in the life of Moses, God's big picture, his long-term plan, and it helps us know, oh God, you're sovereign. God, you're in charge. God, you have a plan, you're the artist, and you're shaping us. How can we then recognize your hand at work and be responsive to you? Because God can do amazing things with people who are responsive to him because he wants to shape us to be his servants. And if you were here last week, you know that God's hand was at work in Moses' life even before he was born. He was at work in shaping him. 
And what's amazing about Moses' life and the, the kind of the time that he was born is he, God was shaping him in the very scary and chaotic times. Moses, Moses was born into a world of racism, oppression, and genocide. That's the world in which Moses was born into. Moses was born a Hebrew, which meant he was born a slave, slave to Egyptian masters. And just because he was Hebrew, he was automatically hated. That's the world in which he was born into. He was born into a world in which the Pharaoh said, had an edict that said, all Hebrew baby boys need to be killed. They need to be thrown into the Nile River and be fed to the crocodiles. That's the world in which he was born into. The, the Pharaoh was concerned about a slave revolt. The Hebrew people were slaves. And so the Pharaoh said, well, if I, you know, kill the army before it grows up, then I'll feel a lot safer. So, hey, edict, all the baby boys need to be killed. But Moses' parents, through their amazing faith, uh, decide to hide Moses when he was born. And they hide him for three months. But after three months, they can't hide him anymore, so the plan needs to change. And so they come up with another plan, which is put Moses in a basket like a, and, you know, paste it with tar and so it could float. So a little boat, they put it in the Nile River strategically so it would float down the river right where Pharaoh's daughter would come down to bathe. And amazingly, um, the plan worked. And the Pharaoh's daughter sees this basket, calls the servants to go get the, retrieve the basket, and there's Moses. And she has compassion on this baby. Now, that, w- that woman, we know who it is. That Pharaoh's daughter, is, her name is Hatshepsu. And she is the most powerful woman in, of Egyptian history. She's the only woman in all of Egyptian history to take to herself the title of Pharaoh. So she was a very, very powerful woman. And in fact, I have a, we have a, a kind of a picture of you know, what she is, and a lot of the images of her have been chipped off because people so resented the fact that as a woman she took on the, this title and this, this uh, position of Pharaoh, but she didn't struggle with her own self-concept. In fact, I'll just show you another image. This is an image of uh, her cartouche. And a cartu- cartouche is a, um, um, a seal, a seal that was made. And in this case, it was made by the, um, the pharaoh, the kind of their signature seal. And with it, they could tell, they could put on the seal what it is that they wanted to have said about themselves. And so this is her seal and what she had said about herself. And so it's hieroglyphics. You can't read it. I can't read it. But the translation is this. Um, it's this. Twice the spirit of Ra, united with Raman, the most noble of women. So, again, not a woman who's struggling with her own self-concept, right? She's a very powerful woman. She knows it. No one is going to dare to mess with her. And she's the one that finds Moses. A little curiosity, a baby that's crying. It opens her heart towards compassion. So she says, this is a Hebrew baby. And of course, right then, um, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, who was hiding out, strategically placed, jumps out and says, hey, you found a baby. You know, I can find someone that could nurse that baby for you. And the, the, the Pharaoh's daughter says, great, go get her. So right then, federally funded, um, the, Moses' parents get to um, raise Moses. Um, uh, and, and really have it be supported by the Egyptian government, which is just this incredible thing. And so up until Moses was 10 or 12 years old, um, his parents were able to raise him, and they raised him with an understanding of his identity, that he's a Hebrew, 
and that he's, he's, um, he's a Hebrew, and there's one true living God. And so they set that identity into him um, early and, and, as, and, as, and as intentionally as they could. And then at age 10 or 12, they had to then give him back to Pharaoh's daughter to be brought into the royal court to live with the royal family. And I'll tell you, I, I can't imagine how difficult that would have been. Not just to hide the baby, but then to raise the baby and then to have to give their son up and to release him. So there's, there's trauma in all of that. And there's, there's challenge in all of that. But they've raised him and now they release him and he's brought into Pharaoh's court. And there he becomes a prince of Egypt. Now, all of that said, we see God's hand at work, sovereignly working, shaping the life of Moses. But none of that story is neat and tidy, is it? Moses was born a slave with a death warrant over his head. He was hidden by his parents. He was put in a basket, rescued by an Egyptian um, uh, princess, and then given back to his parents who had to pretend that they were foster parents, and then they had to release him back to the court, and he's now a, a foreigner brought into the royal court. None of that is neat and tidy. Do you understand that? It's messy. It's challenging, and it's hard. In, in fact, there's a, there's a principle in all of that just for us as well. And it's, it teaches us something about what God is doing in Moses' life that God also wants to do in our life. That sometimes we have to remember and recognize, and some of you need to hear this, that your history does not define your destiny. Do you understand that? That you may say, man, my background, my, my life has been messy. And if you knew all the stuff that I've been involved in or the stuff that I've done or the things that have, have happened to me, the trauma of my childhood, man, my life, I just don't know if it could ever have meaning. No, it can. Because you look at Moses and you say, man, all the trauma, all the, the difficulty, all the challenge, all the uncertainty, all the doubt, all the struggle with racism and oppression and genocide, guess what? Your history does not define your destiny. God does. And so it's all the more important for us to stop and say, God, your hand is at work. And how in our lives can we be responsive to you? Because once we get that and we know that God has a plan, he can do great things in our lives and through our lives as we respond to him, as he shapes us to be his servants. But here's the thing. When we come to the realization that God does have a plan, we have to stop and say, okay, God, you need to manage your plan your way. Because sometimes what we're tempted to do, to do is say, God, you've got a plan, and I think I need to help you out with it. God, I know that this is your will, but I think I can do it better. And so we begin to stop and say, yeah, God, your, your plan, but it's going to be managed my way. And that's where Moses finds himself, in a spot where he says, yep, God's will, but my way and he makes a real mess of things. And I think it's pretty relatable for you and I as well. And so that's what we we're going to look at today in this passage as God continues to shape his servant Moses, and he wants to continue to shape us. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And as we look at this passage and as you find it, I invite you to please stand as we read it together. Um, we worship God when we we hear his word with a desire to respond to him. And that's what we get to do together as we read this passage. 
Let me, let me share with you this story. Exodus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11 through verse 15. says this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? When Moses was afraid, uh, then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay, go ahead and have a seat, and we'll take a look at it together. So starting in verse 11, it says this. One day after Moses had grown up. The question is, what does that mean that Moses had grown up? And to help us with that, I want to kind of reintroduce you to a Bible study principle that I've, I've shared with this, our congregation before, but um, it might be helpful for you to know or hear again. It's this, that one of the best, simplest, and most significant Bible study tools or principles that you can have if you're serious about studying the Bible is this. Here's the principle. To compare Scripture with Scripture. To compare Scripture with Scripture because what we find in Scripture so often is that when we have a passage, there's other passages that give us another picture, another view, another angle, and by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we begin to get a 3D picture, 3D view of what God is wanting to communicate with us his people. And in fact, we have in Acts chapter 7, the great speech of Stephen. And in it, he speaks of this, uh, uh, this uh, about Moses, and he brings in some other details. And so what, what, what I want to do today is kind of take that and help um, kind of bring in some additional insight into what this passage is about. So when it says that Moses grew up, what does that mean? Now we turn to Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 22. It says this, Moses was educated in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So as he was growing up, here's what we do know, that he was educated in the courts of Pharaoh as a prince of Egypt. That is, he had access to um, the most incredible education available in the world. You know, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, Princeton, Yale, all, you know, pulled together in one. It really was an incredible education that was available to him that he received. And he received it, and it says not just that he received education, but it tells us something about his ability to take in that information and what to do with it, because it says that he was powerful in speech and action. So it's not just that he had a great education, but he had the giftings to take that education and, um, and, and expand on that. So he really um, is, is an incredible person. So that's the education that he had growing up. But then the next verse is very helpful in Acts 7. It says 23, verse 23, it says this, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So 40 years old, he decides to go visit his own people, the Israelites. This is helpful because growing up, he grew up um, first for the first 10 to 12 years in, um, with his birth family. And he was, in that time, his identity was uh, really set and secured, anchored by his mom and dad. That his parents, in those early formative years, 
helped him understand who he was, that he was a Hebrew. He helped him understand that he worshiped the one true God of the Israelites. And they used this time to help him understand his identity. That they helped him understand that he was a descendant of Abraham and that God had given Abraham a great promise that he would be given, uh, the, brought in the, the, God's people would be brought into the, the Holy Land, the land of promise. And his parents would say, but Moses, guess what? Clearly, we're not there yet. We're in Egypt. We're not in the promised land. And then, of course, God's promise to Abraham is that they would be a great people. And then, of course, they would say to Moses, but Moses, we're not a great people yet. We're a slave people right now. So God hasn't fulfilled his promise, but he has promised to make us a great people. And then he, the, he, he knew that the promise to Abraham was also that they would be a deliverer would come from the line of Abraham. And they would, they would be able to say to Moses, and clearly Moses, the deliverer has not come yet because we're still here. We're still stuck. So the fulfillment of these promises have not been made. And yet you are a descendant of Abraham and a recipient of these great promises. So he knew his identity. He knew he, who, he, who he was. Even as he grew up as a prince of Egypt, his identity was set. He knew he was part of the Hebrews. But it also says that he was 40 years old. So he grew up, and by growing up, he, he grew up in, that, in this, uh, the palace. But at 40 years old, um, you, you know, he knows that God has a plan, that God's made a promise, that Moses is a part of what God is doing, And so by 40 years old, you know, you get to a spot where you're thinking, okay, God, I'm ready to be used by you. At 40 years old, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not getting any younger. By this time, I should be fulfilling a purpose. I should be doing a work. I should be involved and engaged. And so if by 40 years old, you're not, you're you're beginning to go, okay, God, when? At what point am I going to get going? And this is kind of what happens in a royal family, right? You can't really get promoted unless there's a vacancy, can you? Prince Charles became King Charles at what age? 73. I think 73, 72 or 73. Anyway, he's waited a long time. And what, so to speak, in the, in the royal, in the, the way that the royalty works, right? So Moses is like, okay, I've been waiting. I'm 40. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go. I know that I'm, uh, this is my identity, that God has a purpose. God has a plan. He's got a great promise for his people. So what, when do I get going? And this is how he's feeling. And of course, he's beginning to think to himself, I know the purpose of God, the plan of God, so maybe I, get to, I should help God out. You know, things aren't going, things aren't moving yet, but maybe, maybe I can help him with that. And, and, and not instead of being patient and waiting for God's timing and God's plan and God's way, he says, hey, maybe I should do something about that. I'm just looking for that opportunity. And this is where he kind of finds himself in the mess. Now, jumping back to Exodus um, verse 11, it says this, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. So again, he goes out, um, it says in Exodus to be with his people. Again, he identifies with the Hebrew people, even though he's grown up in Egyptian palace, which is crazy because the Egyptians um, had, uh, were very racist, and they saw the Hebrew people as slaves, and they had a term for them. They called them the living dead. So not a high view of the Hebrew people. That's the, the, what he grew up with as an Egyptian in the Egyptian household, but he sees them as his own people with compassion, and he cares for them. And so he sees them at their hard labor, He's just is thinking, when can, you know, when can God en- enact his plan? 
to, to help these people, to rescue them, to save them, to bring about his promises. So he's looking, he's waiting for that moment. The moment he thinks comes. He says, it says this in, in 2.11. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So he sees an Egyptian a slave master beating a Hebrew. He says, okay, this is my time to act. What does he do? Look at the next verse. It says this, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Looking this way and that. Moses looked to the left. He looked to the right, but he didn't look up. Who here hasn't committed the sin of Moses at some point in your life? You've looked to the left, you've looked to the right, but you didn't look up. This is where Moses finds himself. And it's easy for any one of us to find ourselves in the same place. To say, ah, you know, check with my resources, checked around me. I, don't, I think this is good. I'm going to go instead of saying, God, is this what you want me to do? Is this the way that you want me to go? Instead, Moses looks to the left, he looks to the right, and he goes. And let me just help you with something that's important for us to see sometimes uh, in, in biblical doctrine. One of the things that we do know is that there's this concept of a tempter. In biblical doctrine, we know that there's a, a, a real and true enemy uh, of the follower of Christ, a tempter who wants to tempt us to do wrong. Perhaps you've experienced that at some point in your life, where you have been tempted to do wrong, where the tempter comes to you and says, hey, listen, you know, you, 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 know, you had a drinking problem, but you don't have a drinking problem now. Sure, you can have one more dr- drink. You're not going to get drunk. And the temptation is there. The temptation to, for the young person to say, hey, listen, you know, um, you, you know, you don't have to wait to get married. I mean, you can move in with them now. I mean, you're committed to them. It's just paperwork, right? So just go for it. It's the temptation for the business person to say, hey, you know what? You've been working for the company. You've been working hard. They owe you. You can fudge some numbers because, again, they owe you for all the hard work that you've been doing. You, you get that? There's the tempter that tempts us to do wrong, and maybe you've experienced some of that in your life. But it's also important for us to recognize that the tempter doesn't just tempt us to do wrong, but the tempter can also tempt us to do right, but in the wrong way. That there's a real temptation to do the right thing, but we do it in the wrong way. So the tempter says, hey, listen, did you see that Facebook post? That's just not right. And the tempter says, you need to get on and blast them. You need to put them in their place. They'll love you for it. The tempter says, hey, you know, at work, that's a conversation that's taking place and they're not wrong. They're not right. And so you need to correct them. You need to hammer them. You need to set things straight. They'll love you for it. See, the tempter can tempt us to do a right thing, but in the wrong way. And when we find ourselves in this spot, we can, we can end up making a mess of things, can't we? And, and that's, that's, that's the, what's, what's going on in this place, too. It tempts us to do wrong. And what we end up doing is when we do the wrong thing, then the tempter, after tempting us to do the right thing in the wrong way, after we do it, then the tempter says, now hide it. Bury it in sand. D- 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 uh, you know, kind of diminish it. It's, it's not that big of a deal. But, and that's exactly what happens here. 
The tempter attempts to do the right thing the wrong way. Then you do it. Oh, now you've got to hide it. And, and this is a real challenge. I, I found this even just in my own life this past week where um, as a parent, I see certain things and it's not right and I need to step in. But sometimes I don't always have the right approach. And so I see something that's wrong. I see something that needs to be corrected. I'm the parent. It's my responsibility. So I jump in. Just this past week, I jumped in. And it was the wrong way at the wrong time. So I had to go back to one of my kids and say, hey, I'm sorry. I I was right, by the way, but (laughs) I didn't do it the right way. And the timing wasn't right. And I just, you know, in my mind ringing is James chapter 1, you know. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Sometimes I reverse those things. But I was right. But I did it in the wrong way. And it can be crushing. And I think that's just something we just need to be aware of. And that's what takes place here. In fact, Acts 7 gives us a little bit more insight. Now we go back to Acts. It says this. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. I was talking with our teaching team and we were looking at this verse and we realized that Moses was the first avenger. Here you have it in this passage. He avenged him. He saw someone doing wrong. And so he steps in and he avenged. And in many courts, you know, Moses could probably be, uh, you know, modern day courts, he could be acquitted. You know, the Egyptian courts could say, well, of course, you know, he was a prince of Egypt. And so does he have the right to kill an Egyptian slave master? Sure. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. So he's the prince. So, so maybe he'd get off, uh, you know. Uh, and then in the Hebrew court system, it's like, hey, he should be given an honor, a medal, an honor. He's a patriot, right? So you could see how that could go. But what we, what we need to stop and say is that he wouldn't get acquitted, um, an acquittal in God's court. Because nowhere did God say to Moses, I want you to go out and kill some Egyptians. Do you see, do you see what's going on there? And so this is, this is important for us to get. He goes out, and again, right thing, done the wrong way, looks to the left, looks to the right, doesn't look up. He gets himself in this spot. Then um, the next verse, uh, let me, let's go back then to um, Exodus 2.13. says this, The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? So he goes out the next day, right? The day before, he's the avenger. Um, He comes back the next day. He's thinking, okay, I've got to still help these people. He steps in. Clearly, he's, um, he's identifying with the victim here because he goes to the person in the wrong. And he says, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And so he's bringing reconciliation. He's trying to bring them together, but it doesn't go well. We see that in the next verse. Look what it says. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? So he said, who, who died and made you Pharaoh? That's what he's simply saying to him. He's like, oh, what's going on here? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And so it's all of a sudden, it's like, ah, wait a minute. This isn't how I pictured things going. This isn't how I pictured the response going after I've avenged my people and I'm stepping up for them and, and managing things my way, the way that I see things that should be done. But all of a sudden, it's backfiring. It's not working. And this is, again, where Acts can help fill in some of the blanks. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7. It says this, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. See, Moses thought that, hey, you, they'll clearly see that I'm, I'm here. 
I'm here to save the day. I'm here to rescue. I'm here to help them out. But here's the problem. He was still dressed up in a pharaoh suit. He was still a pharaoh in training. And they're looking at him going, what have you done for us? How do we know you? What have you been doing for the last 40 years? And sometimes, here's here's the thing. We expect people to respond a certain way because we know what's right and we're going to do it and we're going to, you know, tell them what's right. But absent of relationship, people don't always want to hear you, do they? Even if you're right. You can have great insight. You can know the right thing. You can know the right path. But if you don't do it in the right way and you don't do it the right timing, you don't have credibility. And it's important for us to get, if we're going to, you know, work with people and help them, you know what it takes? It takes loving them, serving them, sacrifice for them. You get credibility those ways, not because you've got all the right answers and you're ready to tell them. And so here, Moses thinks he can shortcut that, that he can just jump in, that they're automatically going to go, wow, you're amazing. Let's start the revolt now. But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's timing. That was Moses thinking. And him was, he was shocked at this moment because he's like, why aren't they recognizing that I'm here to save the day? And again, it's because he was doing it his way, not God's way. Was his motive good? Yeah. Was his method good? No. Was his timing right? No. All of those things were not right. The, he, what, he was doing it his way. Then, going back to um, Exodus, says this. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Of course, Pharaoh's going to try to kill Moses. Because if you're um, an Egyptian that's helping slaves, um, you know, and, and start a revolt, then you're now, you know, a traitor. And so, of course, he wants to kill Moses. But then it says this, Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by the well. That's the second part of the verse. He went and he fled away. So he's like, okay, Pharaoh wants to kill me. I've got to flee. And so all of a sudden, because of this one rash act, everything has changed. He's no longer a prince of Egypt. He no longer has a place of influence. He no longer is getting to be among his people. In fact, he's now a wanted man. And so he has to flee, and he flees to Midian. You might be thinking to yourself, well, where is Midian? Let me show you on a map where Midian is. So here's Egypt, this area over here. Moses goes all the way, and that red line shows you where Midian is. And all that to say, this is nowhere near Egypt in, in, this, in this kind of world you know, concept. This is the edge of the earth. This is the, the, you know, way outside the boundaries of Egypt. He goes a great distance. He flees. And it says that he flees to Midian, and he sits down by a well. Now, this is interesting, too, because in, you know, this culture, hospitality was huge. In Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern culture, still in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is huge. And so if someone comes in as a stranger, you're automatically, you know, whatever, whatever the place that they're in would look for ways to show hospitality, to bring them in, to care for them. But here we have Moses showing up and no one wants to touch him. No one wants to touch the guy in the pharaoh suit that's showing up in their town and just sitting by a well. So here he is, because of his action, finally he found himself in a desert place with no connections and no, no resources. And just think about the contrast. He was a prince of Egypt, and now he's in a desert 
sitting by a well, and no one is bringing him in. So what an incredible, con- what an incredible contrast. And, and part of it is help, is, helps us understand what we find ourselves in as well. Because when we try to manage things our own way, we can find ourselves unintentionally pushing other people away. We can. Who hasn't at some point been in a spot where you do things your way, you do it in your timing, you do it in the way that you think ought to be done, and it ends up alienating you from other people. You end up finding yourselves in a place of a a desert like Moses. Who here hasn't found themselves at some point, at some spot in that in that place. We're just like, how did I get here? And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to stop and say, I got here because of my own doing. We don't always like to to admit that, but that's the reality. But here's the good news. Good news for all of us who have found ourselves in a desert place. Maybe you're in a current desert place. You feel isolated from certain people, from family, from friendships, you've lost influence at work, you've, you've um, created, um, you know, animosity or, or um, a distance between you and other people. You find yourself there. Here's the good news that I want to share with you, that it doesn't have to be the end of the story. See, Moses got himself in this place, but, and, and in all, in all honesty, he was a failure at this point, and he was got to this point because of his own failure his own doing. But here's what I know about God. God has a special place in his heart for failures. Do you know that? God has a special place in his heart for failures. Do you know why I know that? Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, for our sins. Each and every one of us have failed. Each and every one of us have gone our own way. Each and every one of us says, okay, God, your will, but my way. At some point, and we've made a mess of things. But God doesn't step back and abandon us in those moments. God has a heart for us, so much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, for our failures, for our mess-ups, so that by, through faith in his sacrifice and what he has done for us, we can be brought back into right relationship with God. And you know how you get there? You come clean. That's how you get there. If you're in a spot where you're feeling like, I've failed, and I'm in a desert, guess how you get out of that? You come clean. Or maybe you're still in the desert, and you're saying, hey, I just am struggling. You come clean and let God work in that desert time. We'll talk more about that this next week. But any, either way, we come clean before God, and we are just honest before Him. And by honest, I mean not just simply saying, um, you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't have done that, but that's not coming clean, by the way. I know I shouldn't have said that, but that's not coming clean. Coming clean is saying, I did it. I was wrong. I messed up. And you know that what the biblical concept or word for the coming clean? It's this. It's confession. And this is a great gift for all of us. The, the gift of confession that we can come to God and confess, I admit I messed up. I failed. And when we come clean before God, it's amazing what God can do with people who come clean before Him, who are just willing and honest to admit, I failed. Admit, I messed up. Admit, admit I created this, this, this place that I'm in. 
when we confess. God can do a great thing. God was not done with Moses, by the way, and he's not done with you. And he offers you an opportunity to come clean before him, to confess so that he can help set you straight and continue to shape you, continue to shape you into the person that he wants you to be. But we have to stop and say, God, I admit, I did it my way, not your way. I chose my path and not your path. I need to stop and say, I did it. I admit it. I'm in the spot. Come clean and allow him to bring healing and hope into your life. If you're in that spot, I want to give you an opportunity to come clean. Come and, and confess. I don't want to miss the opportunity for each and every one of us who find ourselves in a desert place or find ourselves recognizing, yep, I need to admit that God is still inviting us to come to him. So I want to invite us to take a moment and pray. And so if you would, let's pray together and I'll give you a moment to come before God. As we come into this time of prayer, this is a moment really truly for you and God. This is a moment for you to recognize God is here. He's waiting to hear from you. And this is an opportunity that you have to confess to him, to come clean. And there's, there's a, some people here who maybe just need to confess for the very first time that you need God. See, Moses thought that he could, you know, help God out. And it was all about what he could do. And maybe for some of you, that's your simple confession. It's, God, I thought I could do it, but I can't. But only you can. Will you please help me? And your simple confession is this. God, it's not my works. It's not what I do. It's about what you've done. And I recognize that. I admit that. You come to him and say, God, I confess I need you and your work on my behalf. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his grace, and ask that he would, you would transform me through the work of Christ on my behalf. Some of you have already at some point made a confession and placed your faith in Christ. That doesn't mean confession ends there, but that we continue to come back and say, yep, God, I was doing things my way managing my way. I've been looking to the left, looking to the right, but not looking up. I confess that now. Will you help me? And by your grace, will you lead me? You let him know that. He'll listen. God, we are grateful that you're a God who has a heart for um, people who fail. And we know that you don't abandon us. You don't leave us. But you step into our broken world, our broken lives, and you offer us hope and healing. We thank you for the work of Christ. And we thank you that, God, you don't give up on us, that you continue to want to shape us to be people who respond to you and are used by you. God, we, we thank you for this in your name. Amen.